Magnus Podcast, episode 31. This is Rene Girard's Theater of Envy with Patrick Downey. Oh, that's right. Actually, we're sneaking in another bonus episode here. Three beers with me, John Johnson, where I sit down and drink three real beers with real people. Tonight, we're talking to Patrick Downey, author, professor, and senior fellow for the Albertus Magnus Institute, who happens to have an upcoming class in the Magnus Fellowship on Rene Girard's called Rene Girard's Theater of Envy. And uh, if you're new to Rene Girard, great. If this is your first uh, experience with him, don't let it be your last. You can sign up for that class and uh, the other upcoming offerings at magnusinstitute.org. It's always free to become a fellow and take the classes. They are live. They are interactive with other fellows from around the world, and they really are wonderful. So check it out, magnusinstitute.org. It's free. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into this uh, wonderful discussion with Dr. Patrick Downey. Enjoy. Cheers. Cheers. Patrick Downey, St. <laughs> Mary's College fame. Harvard, Boston College. Yep. And now teaching at St. Mary's College. Mm-hmm. Once known as the mother of men. <laughs> well, you're, you're an example. Yes. One of the men from there. Yes. Now the wet nurse of woke. Yeah. <laughs> nurse people off of it. Yeah. Before we get into to, uh, Gerard, what do you think of the decline of academia we now find ourselves in? Oh, it's, in one sense, it's been happening forever. It was going on at Boston College before I even got to St. Mary's. Mm-hmm. But it's just the acceleration the last two years has been the, the unusual thing. More like, rapid. Yeah, just it rapid and broke out of the little strange little... Right. Bestiary of academia now is everywhere. Yeah. What is it? Aquinas says, uh, motus in fine velocitor, that things accelerate as mm-hmm. they approach their terminus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Like terminal right. velocity, right? Mm-hmm, and right. now we're yeah. kind of in, if you would have told mm-hmm. me three years ago mm-hmm. what's going to be happening, that's happening now. Right, yeah, yeah. You say, well, you wouldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and Gerard's kind of curious because one of his last books he wrote before his death was called Battling to the End, where he tried to apply his theory to this apocalyptic moment. Right. That he thinks somehow things are coming to a head the way they hadn't before. It's a very difficult book to read, but somehow he knew something was afoot that was new. So what what, what does that look like? Oh, just that so there doesn't seem to be any end to anything. It's it's like a, a battling in the dark, you know, mm-hmm. ignorant armies clashing by night, but in a at a higher level than before. And so it, nothing really makes sense as much as it's uh, very energetic and crazy. So how do you, how does one just uh, generally, how would one conquer or attempt to conquer an enemy without an end? An enemy without a what? Without an end, without a terminus or without a talos. Oh yeah. Well, how do you fight that? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, this is kind of the problem, uh, that when you have an enemy, there's a way you can give focus to things because the enemy gives you a sense of unity, makes you a friend. That's always been the problem is your enemies make your friends. That goes back to the Bible. Uh, 
the whole idea of um, focusing in on uh, enemy or a scapegoat allows you to, in one sense, be healed by that battle with the enemy. But now, especially because of Christianity, uh, you don't have enemies the same way. So you really can't fight the old-fashioned mode. And that's part of the problem is nobody can quite believe any enemy is really an enemy. And yeah. so you don't have that ability to focus, but then you don't have the gospel that can allow you to live with that. So it's with it's the absence of enemies, absence of scapegoats. So you don't believe anybody's an enemy because your enemies mm-hmm. are no longer really your friends, right? There's not even a common good that you can move your enemy toward. Well, no, it's just, I mean, there really are no enemies in the gospel. Because while we're yet enemies, Christ died for us. So we've all been enemies of Christ, so we can't treat anybody else as an enemy. There are are no enemies. We are the enemy. Yeah, we're the enemy to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, Insofar as we have an enemy, we're our own enemy. So now we we have to live in a world that really can't take any enemy, a scapegoat, seriously. Uh, this is Carl Schmitt's kind of the thinker of enemies, friends and enemies. Uh, Gerard's the thinker of scapegoat, but they overlap politically. And uh, Gerard's more hopeful because he thinks that there's something about the gospel. It's the only way we get out of this mess. But the gospel, in one sense, is problematic right before the end. You see that in the apocalypse, that right before the end times, things go chaotic. But that's right before Christ comes back. And and so there's that's what he's trying to get out of the end times are in one sense worse, but they're almost brought on by the gospel in a strange sort of way. Mm-hmm. But the Antichrist. But the Antichrist is totally derivative from Christ. And so there's some that's why the woke seems to be kind of a, a faux Christianity. It's fake Christianity without a gospel, without forgiveness, without grace. And so you get all the madness of not being able to have really an enemy or an enemy that's not really an enemy without being able to deal with forgiveness and grace and all the things that would make this world livable without enemies. What does Gerard think the Antichrist is? I mean, how would he, does he use that term? Well, again, that's one of his more difficult books, but the Antichrist is, well, two things. One, there's Satan. So Satan is, he's the one that accuses you. So Mm -hmm. that's the heart of the scapegoat. You you accuse somebody. And this is, he's the one that makes, he's the Lord of this earth because that allows civilization to be what it is, needing to accuse a scapegoat. And then people can come together against the scapegoat and that becomes you cast out the scapegoat from the city and the city's kind of unified, freed from this plague. Like Oedipus, you cast Oedipus out of the city, Thebes now is kind of restored. So he, in one sense, he brought the plague, but he gets rid of the plague by being cast out of the city. Well, that's what Satan always does. But but then Jesus asks the question, how can Satan cast out Satan? Because that is, how does he pull off this mystery? Right. Because he seems to be divisive and yet, Diablo that divides everything, and yet he also kind of unifies. Well, he, that's what Christ did. He bound the strong man of Satan. And now the devil doesn't work anymore. He, he flash, thrashes about, but he can't quite pull this off like he did it in paganism and prior to Christ. And so you're seeing, in one sense, the death throes of Satan's dominion. Since the incarnation. Since the incarnation, yeah. And the crucifixion that that kind of revealed when he said, forgive them, they know not what they do. People have always been doing something they know not what. That's Satan. Now the cat's out of the bag. We kind of see how he operates. We can't believe in him as much anymore. He's he's, he's less effective. So this is interesting. So cri- critics of Christianity, critics of Catholicism might say that Christ, mm-hmm. well, he's the king that was cast out and killed mm-hmm. and resurrected, but that's also Gilgamesh. That's also Oedipus. Mm-hmm. And so Christ is just another one of those myths. Mm-hmm. Ergo, it's all 
it's all false. Mm-hmm. It's not real. Just like none of those myths are mm-hmm. real. Yeah. What does Gerard say to that as far as the reality of mm-hmm. the myth in the case of Christ? Or mm-hmm. is there one? His argument is that he, he's revealing the, the mechanism behind the myth. In other words, those myths are created all along because something's continually going on. When Christ is up there, he makes manifest the logic of those, but also you see them all from his side, the one being crucified, rather than we, the ones crucifying him. So you reverse uh, field and you look at the whole world from his angle on the cross. And then you realize, well, he's innocent. Whereas before, whenever you had some sort of sacrificial figure, it's because they were guilty. Like right. Oedipus, he really and, did this and to his Ed, dad. Oedipus and, admits it. Or Oedipus at yeah. least is, is accused of it. It's explicit in the Right, myth. yeah. And so we always deep down think the scapegoat is guilty. And notice we didn't call it a scapegoat. That a scapegoat just was the victim who was guilty and had to be cast out the source of the plague. But now when we use the word scapegoat, we imply that, well, you're scapegoating someone, which means we know we're lying about it. Gerard's the guy that brought out the fact that it, I mean, his argument is that what Christ did on the cross is he exposed the nature of the lie that on the cross. And then in the resurrection, he brought out this possibility that we could actually live without needing this lie. Is there anything to, uh, is Christ is acute or Christ is called the, the scapegoat essentially by Caiaphas, right? Yes. Expedient. Uh, the one man die for the, the nation of Israel. The nation. Mm-hmm. But Christ would never really refer to himself as a scapegoat. No, just think when he shows up, um, yeah, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist says that about him. That he's the Lamb. The Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that's what the, the first recognition of his role, and that's why he came into this world to become the Lamb of God. In the history of the of the sacrificial mythos, is Christ <laughs> the first to be innocent, is, uh, or is he the first to claim innocence? Well, I mean, this this is somewhat of a tension in Gerard, but. Um, in one sense, the scapegoat, you put your sins on the scapegoat so he has them, he goes out in the wilderness, just the goat part. But then also the Passover lamb on Passover, uh, that that lamb is uh, is innocent. He's got to be spotless. Um, but in one sense, that lamb takes upon himself the sin of Pharaoh, killing one kill the Israelites. And so there's always this quality in the whole biblical story that everybody's a sinner. So anyone that gets killed or murdered, in one sense, is a co-conspirator in this. So no no human being is innocent, original sin. But Gerard, because he brings out the lie of this, he, he pretty much implies that, well, yeah, they really are fundamentally innocent. That it's just an arbitrary victim. You choose somebody, not because they really stand out. You need to pretend that they are unusually guilty or even guilty at all. Uh so he, he's in tension with the notion of original sin. Are, are these people guilty or not? In one sense, everybody's guilty. So, of course, Oedipus is guilty. But his argument is that no, Oedipus, that's trumped up. He's not really guilty at all. He had a lame foot. And so you pick out some wounded person, someone limping, some weakness, and then you use that as a sign, ah, they're this way because they're cursed. There's something wrong with them. So he's focusing on the trumped up quality of the accusation. But the Christian tradition relative to Christ and say, well, everybody's guilty. He, Christ then is the first innocent lamb. So he really is the innocent victim, fully innocent victim. But his innocence reveals the fact that all the other claims that other people are guilty is, 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 is a lie. That the people doing it are always the guilty one. Mm-hmm. So the one throwing the stone is guilty. And now 
by seeing everybody from the standpoint of one stone, you, you see that, uh, that, that they have to realize that they are the sinners throwing the stone. But then because Christ takes on the role of the one stoned, he then is the one revealing that it's fundamentally innocent, these victims, mm-hmm. that it's a lie. How, how about the royalty of these figures? Like Oedipus is obviously a king, mm-hmm. or at least, you know, he, he thinks he is. I mean, Siddhartha is a king. Gilgamesh, I think, is a king, right? All these yeah. myths. Christ is mm-hmm. is born in obscurity. Mm-hmm. It turns out he's actually a king, mm-hmm. but nobody would have spotted it. Yeah. Is that unique to the Christian myth, and does Gerard point that out at all? Uh, well, he, he would... It wouldn't be that he's not known. He'd focus on the that that kings are always they're kind of ex victims, mm-hmm. or so, they're they're born of a crisis, right? They're right, yeah, yeah. So they they so they're like the flip side that they become kings uh, because they were sacrificed, because of bloodshed or something above the right. So that they have a they have a dual quality. Okay. So they're, they're victims. Kings are victims that have now been savior. So they are the savior part of the sacrifice, but they had to, in one sense, be killed guiltily. So he, so for example, in the theater of envy, he deals with that with uh, how uh, Shakespeare deals with Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar is is killed, but then he has that dream before he's killed from his wife that people are going to drink his blood and put omelets and that he's going to purify the world. And well, that's what happened with Caesar. He was killed, uh, but then he became this guy that brought new life. So uh, Brutus too was the same. Brutus was the conspirator, but then by saying that he was above envy, somehow now he's the good guy. So both so between Brutus, who kills the king, and then Caesar, who's killed, you see them both being transformed by this act. So they is, have always this dual aspect. Of Caesar's wife uh, is that originate in Shakespeare, or is that well? Gerard points out that, uh, that you have the section from Plutarch that uh, Shakespeare quotes, but then he adds an uh, interpretation of how to read it that isn't Plutarch, and that's just pure Shakespeare. And that's that's specifically about the wife's dream? Yeah. So she has the dream, and, and her dream is don't go, and you, you'll get killed if you go to the, to the forum. Uh, but the interpretation, I think, by Casca that Shakespeare adds is the one, oh, no, it doesn't mean that. It means that we are going to wash ourselves in this blood and it'll be this for the purification and the wow. the power of uh, Rome. So that's Shakespeare telling you that he knows what's going on here. He knows that blood is, and the, the, the Caesar is killed is going to lead to this great emperor. Do you think Luke is keen to that when he, when he mm-hmm. draws the reader's attention to Claudia and Pontius Pilate and her mm-hmm. dream? I think that's Luke, right? Uh, but there's a there's a yeah. Roman there's a Roman ruler mm-hmm. whose wife mm-hmm. has a dream telling, uh-huh. right. telling this yeah. guy to have nothing to do with the blood. Uh huh. Yeah. And well, Plutarch is written after that, so I don't think he could have got that from Plutarch, unless well, Plutarch. But Caesar's Caesar's before, but Plutarch's. Yeah, Plutarch's after, writing about Caesar maybe three three hundred years after two three hundred years later. But Caesar, I mean. It would have been pretty Maybe fresh in memory, right? For I mean, well, if, if so, if it really happened, if it really happened, yeah. So yeah, it, it, that could have been part of it, right? Yeah. But there could have been a bigger tradition, though, of uh, listening to your wife and not listening to your wife. Or, uh, yeah, I mean, it, the wife's intuition. Who knows what it could be? But there's because mm-hmm. because the 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 woman would be kind of like the domestic sphere or the private world, right? And the man has political responsibilities, but somehow the woman may be more aware of this. Uh, the, the role of violence and what's going to be resulting from it, the way the king is oblivious to it. Yeah. 
That's interesting. And Luke, yeah. Luke is a Gentile, right? So you would have been. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it may be a bigger tradition that Plutarch, Plutarch was uh, referring to, or Calpurnia was part of a bigger tradition. Uh-huh. If this was an actual thing that occurred. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Okay. Let's rewind just a little bit. Yeah. Who is Rene Girard and why should we? I, I mean, I mm-hmm. I discovered him a little bit late in life. And mm-hmm. I'm just barely dipping my toes into the shallow end. Mm-hmm. And I wish I would have, I wish somebody would have turned me on to him earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, who is he and, and why should we read him? Oh, he's, well, he's uh, basically a, uh, a French literature professor that teaches that in America. Uh so he's teaching American students about French literature, and he came from France. Um, but he was kind of Johnny on the spot when the deconstructionists hit in a in Yale. He brought Paul the Man over, I think, uh, and so he he was kind of when things were happening in the scene. And but he was already up to his own pursuits, and he was making independent breakthroughs on his own, just kind of working away. And all of a sudden, he did some work on Dostoevsky, and he thought, "Wow, something big's going on here." And then he started moving from there, just doing the, the desire to see the novel, seeing major guys, Dostoevsky, Proust. He saw they all had a pattern of something they were working on. They were doing more than writing novels. They were almost working on some big issue. That big issue is the scapegoat thing. Uh, and then he moved from there to anthropology, violence and the sacred. And then from there, he saw, well, this connects back to what's going on in scripture. And he had a Catholic upbringing. And then by working it through in scripture, then he basically returned to his faith and he saw that oh yeah this is it's not going on in Dostoevsky or Proust on their own they're getting this from scripture they really are unpacking what they inherited in their tradition through the gospels this is the logic of the gospels and so then he wrote things hidden from the foundation of the world and then laid all this out in terms of uh, the old new testament and so then he consolidated that. He, that was the complete breakthrough to see that this is was all along with the gospels all about so the logic of the gospels is is mythological and would we say that and uh, so in what sense? no no it's, it's exposing the, the structure of mythology yeah so what is that what does that mean what is the structure of mythology that the, 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 the structure of mythology is it's uh human beings uh, because of their desire being mimetic they, they get it from other people uh they don't spontaneously desire this or that object they don't know what to desire until they see somebody else desiring it mimetic in the sense of um imitative imi- imi- imitatives imitative creatures right yeah like right yeah humans are yeah that we uh we we like kids the, the classic examples kids in the, the sandbox what pl- what toy do they want to play with they don't know until they see another kid playing with that toy and then they want yeah. that toy yeah and so they, they don't spontaneously want any one toy. We tend to think that we want this or that toy. But like advertising, we, we find out what we want by somebody else telling us we should want it. Yeah. So you're teaching a class for AMI coming up. Mm-hmm. What is it called? Theor- uh, Gerard's Theater of Envy. Theater of Envy, yeah. In your description, you mm-hmm. said that uh, the the 10th commandment, the mm-hmm. last commandment, is sort of the foundational mm-hmm. sin. and. I knew this. I learned it uh, as a young father. Mm-hmm. I didn't learn it from Rene Girard, mm-hmm. but I kind of right. when I, I got like a bunch of kids mm-hmm. who were less than seven years old. Yeah, right. And the first sin that mm-hmm. anybody ever commits is a violation of the tenth commandment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The last commandment chronologically is mm-hmm. always the first one you break. Mm-hmm. I want this. Give me that. Mm-hmm. She has my toy. Right. And so I'm thinking, shoot, that's the first sin I committed must have been the same. <laughs> right, yeah. right? 
Well, it not, it not only the first uh, uh, in the development of a a child, but it's also the first in in scripture, because the first sin that Adam and Eve do is uh, is they covet the knowledge of God and evil of good and evil, and so when the serpent says, "Oh, he doesn't want you to have it," they for the first time think, "Oh, it's desirable to make one wise." Why is it desirable? They they think they're looking at good and evil. They're really looking at God. God trying to keep them from the knowledge of good and evil. So, th- so this is the the blindness that comes from coveting is that you what you think you're looking at you're not looking at. So it, you see in the tenth commandment, what does you that shall, mean? well, what you, you shall not cover your not your neighbor's uh, house, their cow, their wife, or anything that your neighbor owns. Mm-hmm. Okay, why is it suddenly just shift away from the cow, the wife, the house to the neighbor? Because it really is the neighbor that is you got your eye on. You think you're thinking of the house, the cow, the wife. It's your neighbor because your neighbor has that house. The neighbor has that cow. The neighbor has that life. life. His life that you want. You want to be him. So so Gerard will say this. You you think you want uh, something, but you want to be. He says that's the ontological quality. You want to be the person that has that that cow, that wife, whatever. Because if they have it, somehow they, in one sense, are making you feel inferior because they have what you don't have. So you think you're looking at the thing, but you really are needing to replace them, the rival. So they're a model and a rival. They tell you what to want, but now they stand in the way of you getting it. So now you're obsessed with them rather than whatever they're standing in the way of. Yeah. So that's why the kid, you know, he becomes a rival of the other kid in the sandbox because so, that what, kid's so got the tractor. Adam and Eve become rivals to each other. Well, that but that's first God becomes a rival to both of them. Right. So they become rivals of God. See, this is the secret tie to the crucifixion. From the very beginning... Because God is our rival, to get the knowledge of good and evil, we have to murder God, get him out of the way. Well, we're not allowed to do that, thank God. We're spared that, uh, but he covers with animal skin, so we kill an animal to divert ourselves from this murderous desire to be our model yeah. and rival. Well, then finally on the, cru- on the cross, we get the chance to really do what we wanted to do from the beginning. We get to we destroy the, our rival. Before we shed the blood, we cover ourselves with the fig leaf. Like, we hide ourselves. Yeah, but that doesn't work because that's the lie to think, oh, this isn't a problem. This right. isn't murder. Coveting's not murderous. Right. We don't think it's murderous. Oh, it's kind of innocent, like kids so in the sandbox. you just hide your intentions from the other. Right. Almost innocent. We're self-deceived and we want to deceive one another, but by God covering them with animal skins, the bloodshed is a sign that, oh, no, I know what's going on here. This is why you're murderous. You're, you're, you screwed up your desire. If you could have happily said, okay, uh, yeah, I want what God says I should want, then you would get good and evil on his terms that he could give it to you. But because you wanted to be him rather than him give you what he says is desirable, because he wants us to have the knowledge of good and evil, and that's the whole gospel gives us the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we want to do that's the tree. Of, there's a tree of life in the mm-hmm. garden at the same time that there's a tree of good and evil, right? Yeah, but the tree of life is just sort of mysteriously there in the corner, you don't yeah. know what it is. Well, and, and of course, Christ gains the knowledge of good and evil in the garden of Gethsemane, yeah, that's the cross. When he, obey, when he obeys, the cross turns out to be the tree mm-hmm. of life, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So, so, th- so that's so that's why coveting is the key thing. Uh, with God at the beginning, but then it leads to, in the Ten Commandments, it leads to murder, it leads to bearing false witness, lying, it leads to adultery. All these things flow from uh, uh, coveting because that's the secret thing behind them all. It's not the lesser thing. Like they, they go from big crimes down to small, trivial crimes. It's actually then you got to work it back. And then that's why you have a false God and you're an idolater because of coveting.
So the order, the order of in, in chronologically, the order of sin would be mm-hmm. 10th commandment. You want what your neighbor has. Mm-hmm. And then that means in order to really have it, mm-hmm. you got to be him. Mm-hmm. Right. Otherwise you don't really have it. Right. Yeah. You're just, um, Dostoevsky's permanent husband. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The, Eternal uh, husband. Yeah. Eternal husband. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're the cuck basically yeah. like watching your beloved through mm-hmm. the other's eyes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and he did a lot of work with that. I mean, th- this is why in the book on Shakespeare is really good because he starts off with uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, and and it's all about Gerard this. Gerard does, yeah. uh, and just the romp between these four uh, lovers, two guys and two girls out in the woods. You see all that jealousy, that rivalry, the kind of the madness of being hard to get. That in one sense, everybody knows from rom coms how this works. Right. When you when you say no, then suddenly they want you. Uh, but if you say yes to them, they don't want you anymore. Right. So he plays off of that. The four couples. And as soon as you have it, you don't really. You don't want it. it, yeah. And so this is why they all reverse. Well, that's all the kind of the craziness. Romantic love is based upon this coveting. Right. You 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 desire through another's eyes. You don't desire through your own eyes. Mm-hmm. So he uses that seemingly a, just a little romantic romp to tie it into bigger things, bigger things, until you get to Julius Caesar. And then finally, you see the violence that this so, leads to. Desiring your neighbor's goods. Mm-hmm. And Gerard says this, right? That desiring your neighbor's goods will make you friends. Mm-hmm. It's what makes you friends because you share a good. Mm-hmm. Or at least you both want the same thing. Oh, that's, well, that, it can make you uh, enemies. But that also makes you enemies. Right. Because yeah. if you really want it and it's not shareable, mm-hmm. one of you's got to go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what happens. So Adam mm-hmm. and Eve. Mm-hmm. They see this thing that they think God has and that they are being, mm-hmm. it's being withheld from them. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that, that's what they hear from Satan, the that, accuser. Which is a lie. Yeah, yeah right. Right? Because ultimately yeah. they're going to get everything. Yeah, God wants it. And think if they'd obeyed. If, it, say, say Eve gave the apple to Adam and he didn't eat, uh, then he, if he didn't listen to the voice of his wife, as you see, because he's condemned, because you listen to the voice of your wife, uh, if, he, if he listened to God, then he would have gained the knowledge of good and evil. So then Eve would have had it through him. So they both would have gained precisely what the serpent said God didn't want them to have. Because the, the knowledge of good and evil is to listen to God, and you desire happily through him. Right. If you desire through him, then you get the, your heart's desire. But because you had to bump him out of the way before you could get what you desire, you're not you're not really after that thing at all. You're just, you turn God into a rival. Mm-hmm. So if Adam would have obeyed mm-hmm. God through yeah. the serpent's temptation. Yeah, he would have given knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Right. And 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 I mean I mean many things could have played out right mm-hmm. he could have I mean even if his wife ate of the apple oh she did I mean that's that's what I'm yeah, saying yeah right he would have then saved his wife uh, and she would have gained the knowledge of good and evil through him yeah and yeah. he would have failed in some respect by just not being there when she ate it it seems you know it was his custody oh yeah well yeah but but that's why he basically that's the biblical story that the the, the man. Uh, lays down his life for his wife. Well, he, yeah. uh, Adam could have done that from the get-go. He could have said, hey, God, she screwed up. Yeah. Take my life instead. Well, the key detail right. is that their eyes are only open after he eats, not That's after right. she eats. That's right. Right. So she but so she doesn't one, lead to the problem. One, he led to the problem. Once yeah. she eats, it would seem that blood must be shed, either if it's Adam killing the serpent, right? Just doing, doing mm-hmm. the counterfactual thing here, mm-hmm. right? Adam could have killed the serpent. Yeah. Adam could have laid down his own life. Adam could have chastised his wife. What, I don't need. Why do you assume he's got to do anything except just not listen to the voice? When she gives it to, it says she gave, she gave it to him, because and she, he ate. She disobeyed his commandment. 
we we would have to imply that that because God gave Adam the command before Eve is created, right? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So that that would imply that Eve would have received the she command heard it from him from yeah. Adam. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if Adam walks over one day and sees Eve mm-hmm. eating this apple, mm-hmm. and there's a problem there, right? There's a there's a divergence. No, no, there's a problem. Why is that not a problem? Because he was the one that received the commandment. Yeah, but she's disobeying him. She didn't disobey him. Of course she disobeyed. That's where she got the order. <laughs> no, this, this is a bigger story. It's not Girardi, but this is just a, this. It's it's a replay of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. So in other words, he could listen to the voice of his wife. Who's his wife? His body. His body sweating great drops of blood. And what is that? He could say that would be listening to his will. Let this cup pass from me. So he could have let the cup pass from me. That would well, be listening the to the voice of his wife. Of his but nevertheless, let my uh, let your will be done and not my will. Right. Okay, so he's the one that is the agent here. Is he going to gain the knowledge of good and evil or not? Adam was the same agent. It wasn't Eve that was the agent. She was the patient. She was going to patiently enjoy or suffer what the agent did. I understand that <clears throat> Eve merely eating the apple would not have caused the fall of the human race. Right. But that's Not precisely even her fault. because, uh, well, maybe her fault. But it because would the two are one flesh, so they're in it together. There, well, there, there, there's a little lack of togetherness as soon as Eve does exactly only, what Adam only told only when he listened, only once he listened to her, that's what cut off. Because then they saw that they're naked, and then they covered their yeah, pride. They became she's private still for the first time. Him, if you imagine you're Adam and you're walking your girl through the garden, and you say. Okay, eat this one, eat this one. You cannot eat this one. Got it? You cannot mm-hmm. eat this one. Mm-hmm. And she says, yes, Adam. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then one day he comes over and sees Eve eating away at that apple, talking to that serpent. You got a problem if you're Adam, right? <laughs> that, yeah, I don't, um, I, don't, I don't agree. You don't agree? No, because the two are in flesh. They're in it together. So Adam's basically eating the apple as soon as Eve is eating it? But that's clearly no, no, not the no, case. No, that's what I'm saying. Their eyes are only open after he ate. I get that. Okay, so I get that. So, and that eat- eye, eye opening was the problem. So, in other words, there's no problem until the eyes are open. And they see that they were naked and became ashamed. So they didn't become ashamed when she but ate. Eve can't eat that apple without herself being ashamed because that, that, she knows she's doing what I Adam told her. I just told, told you why that's not do. the case in terms of the details we know. They didn't become ashamed when she ate. Now I know, but she, well, the. What's implicit, Downey, is that she's alone. She's not even with Adam. That's how he come. He stumbles upon the scene later. Okay, but this is not that important. Well, she's. Well, I think it is. Well, I mean, it's. I understand that Eve is not the cause of the fall of man, but but at the same time, there would have been something. You're assuming she's a private. She's not a private operator. She makes herself private as soon as no, she, she listens doesn't. to that. She, she became private once once Adam, Adam ate, they became both became private. So once Adam just walks over there and says, like, Oh, here's my girl eating that tree I told her not to eat. Because they're the two are one flesh. They have to be they're so he, they're, so in, like, okay. they're with things together. All right. So they're they're naked and unashamed, which means there's no privacy between them. They have a shareable body. The two are one flesh. Okay, when he eats, that's no longer the case, but not when she eats. So that's what she had to wait to see what he did before she saw what happened to her. Because they're all to, in it but together. That's, that they are in it. He that's the that's kind of the problem is that he follows her into it. No, but but turn it around. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Then when Jesus doesn't eat at the apple in the Garden the of Gethsemane, flesh follows him into his passion, and I, that's the redemption. I know, but 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 he he saves us when he obeys. Uh, no, so no so doubt about it. yeah. So we enjoy what he does. Likewise, Eve suffered what Adam did. She didn't suffer what she did. She suffered what Adam did. 
Yeah, I get that. We don't we don't save ourselves. I I understand, yeah. but what I'm saying is that Adam probably could have saved Eve without mm-hmm. the whole human race falling, right? If he if, if, if he, he obeyed, yeah, yeah, if he obeyed, but he wouldn't be saving her; he just would be obedient. Well, he would have had to do something to to get her back on track. I mean, he's, <laughs> just just not listen to her. Ironically, yeah. Well, what do you have there? You her. have a little bit of a mimetic rivalry. There's a mini divorce there. If if she if the wife takes the apple and gives it to Adam, and Adam says, "Sorry, babe," okay, all of a sudden they're not so much one flesh anymore. No, they that precisely one, would have that would have kept them one flesh. It would have kept them one flesh, but they would have had to disagree to do it. It's like a mini passion. <laughs> okay. No, I mean. No, I, I think you're wrong. Yeah. Well, what would happen? I mean. I told you why. I'm not going to go there again. All right. Again, right. Yeah. <laughs> Can I get another beer? Yeah. <laughs> All right. A, a two IPA argument. Beer number two. <laughs> like a two Uzo argument if you're in Greece. All right. I'm going to open this text you're going to use in your class. And uh, this struck me. Uh, Envy, this jar says, Envy involuntarily testifies to a lack of being that puts the envious to shame. Mm -hmm. To envy is to acclaim one's lack of something. Yeah. Well, there's a, a standard joke I always use that I think illustrates envy. It's a Russian appropriately enough joke because they seem to be kind of a, maybe just because of communists more envious than usual. But you have a little Russian peasant um, out in the field, and all of a sudden a genie pops up. He turns over a little jar, and there's a genie in it. And the genie says, I'll give you whatever your heart desires. He's all excited. And then he says, but one condition your neighbor over there is going to get twice as much of whatever you get. And he's now flummoxed. He's unhappy until he solves his problem. He says, ah, pluck out one of my eyes. That's envy. (laughs) (laughs) So, because, so notice, what does he want? He wants nothing. He gives, offered all the riches in the world, didn't want anything. If neighbors get twice as much. So envy has always been a, a perverse sort of thing. You, you think you want something, but really envy is wanting to take it away from your neighbor. So you, the thing is you want your neighbor's wife, cow, uh, house. No, you want to take them away from your neighbor. So, it, so, so it's always a, a neg- negating. Uh, so envy, like the traditional definition was sorrow, sorrow over another's good. Yeah, yeah. so you want to take their good away from them. Is, for Gerard, is envy uh, synonymous with mimetic desire? Uh, it's mimetic rivalry. Mimetic rivalry. Yeah. Okay. So you can mimetically desire in a good way. That would be a, a kind of a higher mimesis. Give me an example of. Would say your, da- your dad. You're a it's young boy, and your dad says that's great to wake up early in the morning and go hunting, or something like that. And you say, Yeah, it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why? Because your dad says you should desire it, and you want to be just like your dad. Mm-hmm. So there, that's this higher uh, mimesis because the rank between you and your father means he doesn't become your rival. Okay. 
and vice versa. And that would be with God too. Fundamentally, God, you to have you to imitate. Christ says, "I do what I see my father father, doing," and he says, "You do what you see your father doing." John's gospel: you imitate the devil. Exactly, you are are doing the work of your father. Right, right, yeah. So that's that's the healthy mimesis. Good good mimesis, bad mimesis. Exactly, depending on who you're imitating. Yeah, and you're never free from mimesis, according. This argument for Gerard is that fundamentally the father. You're imitating either your father or lies, the devil, or you're imitating your father in heaven. Only one of those two. Well, well, if you imitate the devil, this becomes kind of a lower mimesis. It's lower in the sense where you're imitating somebody at your level, and the closer they are to your level, the more they become your rival. In other words, compare your relationship to your a father versus your relationship to your brothers. You don't tend to fight with your father. You imitate him happily. So, but you, like Joseph, uh, the brothers, they imitate him, but in an unhappy way. They want to take away what he has. But you you, you imitate and you're at rivalry with your brothers to sort of gain the attention of your father. In one sense, yeah. But also that's the the problem is, is that if you would continually imitate your father, you wouldn't have rivalry with your brothers. That's what breaks the father's heart. Say, say more. Why is that? Well, well, well that's the whole problem is um, the the brothers, you know, break uh, Jacob's heart by killing Joseph or seeming to kill him. And they have to learn again to uh, re- to restore his heart, restore him from Hades himself. His gray hairs went down to Hades when he lost him. And then he's afraid he's going to lose Benjamin. So finally, this whole thing that Joseph is concocting is to get them. So they finally, uh, Judah... Of all people, that's why the Messiah is going to come from Jews' line is the one that says, "No, I, I'm not going to do this. To my father, I'm going to bring his hair down to Hades, so I will offer myself up uh, to keep my father happy." So he now gives up his rivalry between him and the brothers. So and it's feel- only a sacrifice that stops the rivalry. Yeah, yeah, and then you can restore it back to this happy moment. Or you've got to break your brother's nose to stop the fight. I mean, yep. blood's got to be shed, right? Well, no, no, that's not, that's break the nose, and that that's a false solution. In other words, you you well, can that's have, a scapegoat, though, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you can do that, like Cain and Abel. Yeah, yeah. That stops the fight. No, what stops the fight is when God puts the mark on Cain. You threat either further escalation or you. Why somehow, isn't it that Abel's death doesn't stop the fight? Well, that's the problem. In other words, uh, notice Abel doesn't have sin couching at his door, but Cain does, because so Cain becomes a murderer, but Abel doesn't have that. Right. Okay, that's why his sacrifice well, is accepted. And what? And well, it, but well, let me back up. Yeah, Abel's but, a bloody sacrifice. I know, I know. Yeah, so so he's the one that, in one sense, he knows the problem, so he kills that so animal. He kills an animal. So that I guess that's what you mean by the bloody nose. Yeah, that's you, what you I mean. kill yeah. an animal, right, right. something else. So that's um, he mercifully got the point of the animal skins earlier. He knows I better kill an animal rather than my brother because I yeah. got this problem in me now. But his brother says, "Oh no, I don't have a problem in me." So he actually kills his brother. Yeah, or you got to break your brother's nose, right? So you can laugh about it later. Hey, my bro- yeah, my little brother's got yeah. a crooked nose, and I point it out to him every time I right, see him. Right? Yeah, yeah. Or, or even what what Saul's brothers' quarrels is somebody else comes in, you guys are fighting, and then somebody comes and torments your little brother, and you go, "We're going to protect our little brother." And now suddenly your a brother's mutual, again a mutual a mutual enemy, enemy yeah. makes a friend, right? Yeah. yeah. But the broken nose stops the fight, and you yeah. don't have right. to kill each other. Yeah, yeah. If you're lucky, yeah. if you're lucky, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or if you're merciful. Yeah, well, and that's why it's all yeah. God's mercy is that he knows that humans need this. And so humans couldn't survive without a scapegoat mechanism. This is kind of Gerard's anthropology. It's I have somewhat, some doubts about it in terms of it's the 
nature of things. But for him, he's an anthropologist rather than a philosopher. So for him, you kind of have this anthropological problem. This is how humans solve it. And then he says what God is actually doing it for them. This Things get a bit weird with the Old Testament. But then finally, it's transformed through the gospel. So he thinks that this is definitely God's intervention to free humans from that need to have to shed blood to solve this problem. And now with the gospel, we can actually imitate mm-hmm. something that stops the repeated bloodshed of the Old Testament, the mm-hmm. repeated rivalry right. of the Old yeah. Testament. Right, yeah. Because basically from you know, mm-hmm. Adam and Eve, they fall, mm-hmm. they kill an animal, mm-hmm. they cover themselves, mm-hmm. their kids kill, you know, their son kills their other son. Mm-hmm. And the whole Old Testament is bloodshed, sacrifice, mm-hmm. adultery, mm-hmm. envy, right? Rinse and repeat until Christ comes along, mm-hmm. and He offers Himself as the sacrifice. And notice the two that always go together is murder and adultery, like David and Bathsheba. He murders Uriah, commits adultery with Bathsheba. Why is murder and adultery always going on? Because murder is clearly the violent aspect of it. But then adultery is the mimetic rivalry aspect of it. Because adultery, it's always a triangular thing. Would Moses be the exception? He murders but does not adulterate? adulterate? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm not sure you can say it. there's always the two going together. But usually when they're condemned, they're condemned in those pairs. Got it. Okay. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the mystery of Moses is what's going on with Zipporah and that. Yeah. That's But that's... That's in the weeds. Sort that one out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. So, what is the relationship again between murder and adultery? Well, 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 well take, it, take, it, it take, fits this way. Just take circumcision because that's what saves them. You know, this strange thing happens, and she circumcises some character um, and throws it down, and they're spared. Well, just so what's the the, the whole mystery of circumcision? You're it's, shedding blood. You're shedding blood, but it's also in the reproductive organ, the organ of desire, you could say. Okay. So the two are always brought together with circumcision. So just we got to keep our eyes on that. Okay, through, so take me from Testament. envy to murder to adultery. Is that is that the basic chronology? Yeah, and, of, and, yeah. Of perdition? envy, envy, uh, adultery, and then murder. I think envy, adultery. Yeah, because David commits murder. adultery with Bathsheba, and then he's got to murder. Uh, Uriah. David. So, yeah, so, okay. so the rivalry is with adultery. That leads to the murder, right? Just like rivalry with Helen of Troy leads and to he the, murders the war. Uriah through yeah. just betrayal. Yeah, and lying thoroughly yeah. and right. trying to hide it. Right. So you, so the whole thing is to hide it. So that would be bearing false witness. Okay. That leads to the later commandments. And then that tragedy of David mm-hmm. is, in a way, reversed. Mm-hmm. Insofar as the the Christian Paschal mystery is comic, right? Well, it well the the thing to see relative to those two things is uh is you have the whole adultery being reversed, starting with Hosea and yeah, Gomer, right? So that marriage thing, but then you also have the sacrificial system. The two come together, with Christ. That's why I've been talking earlier about the Garden of Gethsemane, because there you have him choosing to be murdered on the cross, but it's also him being the faithful husband. To, to his wife. To an adulterous wife. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's a, right. yeah. His wife is adulterous, but he right. lays down his life for his his wife there. And that's so Ephesians 5, where he yeah. Christ uh, loves the church by being murdered. So that's why adultery and murder are always brought together. It's a whole paschal mystery. Right. And He's you, always got to be a husband and a king. Yeah. And you have, you know, 
Mary Magdalene at the cross. Mm-hmm. You have three Marys at the cross. They're mm-hmm. all named Mary. Mm-hmm. And John makes a point. He mm-hmm. says you have, you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, the mm-hmm. wife of Clopas, mm-hmm. and Magdalene. Mm-hmm. So you have sort of virgin, mother, bride, three the three aspects of femininity mm-hmm. all there is this perfect wife, mother, mm-hmm. um, virgin, wife, mother, maiden, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it says restored. The, um, the, the, the wife has been made spotless. That's mm-hmm. Ephesians, right? Mm-hmm. He's, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. And she was a harlot, mm-hmm. but she's made spotless. Right, yeah. Yeah, but, but the, whole, the whole idea of a, of a prostitute is there's always somebody else involved. So that kind of brings out that there's somebody lurking about. You think it's just between you and you, you and somebody else, but there's really a third party involved, and that's that's the triangular nature of desire. Yeah, yeah. And you know what Magdalene means? No, fortress. Mm-hmm. So this is spun on its head, like it becomes mm-hmm. impenetrable. Uh-huh. Yeah, the harlot becomes impenetrable mm-hmm. in the Christian mystery. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, is Gerard doing something unique? In other words, is he the first guy to figure this stuff out? Because it almost seems obvious once... I know there's other... Mm-hmm. You know, like, Young's into his, into his archetypes and his mm-hmm. myths. Yeah. But the myth and then the, the reality mm-hmm. in the Christian mystery... Right. ...that is sort of different mm-hmm. and in some way revealing yeah. to all the others is... I can't believe that Gerard is just the first guy to... Well, Makes sense of this. The, the way he puts it, um, he follows a pattern in his, in his work on Shakespeare and Dostoevsky, is he argues that Shakespeare, the early Shakespeare is trying to work through what you could anachronistically call Gerard's theory before Gerard. Okay, where's that theory come from? It's the gospel. Okay, but Shakespeare's trying to figure this out as a highly nomadic person. That's why he's in theater and writing these plays, but he knows he's got to solve this problem. And so he's solving it through his work. And that's almost bigger than his literary desires. He's actually trying to uncover the problem and see the solution. And he argues that you can see Shakespeare when he hasn't quite got it right. And then finally has the breakthrough in Winter's Tale. Okay, he makes the same argument with Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky's working this through. He doesn't quite get there in Crime and Punishment, his early works, but finally has a big breakthrough in, um, in, uh, in uh, Brothers Karamazov. So then, so basically now Gerard's saying, and then Gerard would say Proust didn't quite get there, but Dostoevsky did because Dostoevsky saw that it was really the gospel that he's working on. Proust didn't see that. Stendhal didn't see that. So he's basically saying, yeah, I am just in a long line of people that are just applying the gospel to my highly mimetic personality. Uh, And so I realize that somehow it's huge, but I got to figure it out. But it's just figuring out the gospel and applying it to everybody but particularly for them and their creative juices mm-hmm. their mimetic uh tendencies um so the 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 mimetic the first mimetic uh, personality i'm aware of well mm-hmm. i guess first in the history of thought would be aristotle who uh in his rhetoric right writes about the enthymeme as yeah. being the most powerful persuasive form of rhetoric you know the only way you can convey a truth is really to make it mm-hmm. repeatable yeah uh, what's the best way to teach the best way to teach is with questions mm-hmm. because when your student can answer a question mm-hmm. it's like oh i know this mm-hmm. and then he can ask his his students a question and then they answer it and they know it mm-hmm. but then saint john 
basically uses that. He uses the enthymeme throughout his whole gospel, mm-hmm. dozens and dozens of times. Mm-hmm. It's like he's a student of Aristotle, which he very well could have been as a, as a, as a Sadducee in training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure what you mean by empathy, though. A- enthymeme. Enthymeme. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Enthymeme. Yeah. That is an, an, a, 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 a syllogism mm-hmm. with an unfinished... Well, an unfinished syllogism, a syllogism with a missing mm-hmm. uh, conclusion or premise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, as a father, so for instance, in John's Gospel, as a father send me, mm-hmm. so I send you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have a sil- an empty syllogism, but mm-hmm. what's the conclusion? Is the father send a a equals b and b equals c? Mm-hmm. Okay, a equals c is the unstated conclusion. As the father mm-hmm. send me, so I send you. The unstated conclusion is that you are being sent by the father. Mm-hmm. Okay. Enthymeme. That's John's gospel through and through, mm-hmm. all the way. But it's mimetic. Mm-hmm. It's got to be repeatable. And you've got to sort of figure it out on your own and then do it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if there's anything there. Um, or if... Because uh, when I read Gerard, mm-hmm. the little I have, mm-hmm. he seems to be very uh, Johannine, Johannine in that sense mm-hmm. uh, of mm-hmm. the uh, repeatability of these mysteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm just... The- I'm not sure the connection between the two, uh, but definitely there's all sorts of language in John, but imitation, imitation as the father. Oh yeah. Yeah. No doubt about that. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and that's, and that's the, the happy imitation, the, the good imitation. Yeah. But John's yeah. also the only one pointing out that you're imitating your father, the devil when Christ mm-hmm. is speaking. Yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah, yeah. No other evangelist says, talks yeah. like that. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. No doubt about that. Yeah. Right. And the father lies yeah. uh, and a murder from a liar and a murder from the beginning. That's right. Yeah. So the connection of lying to murder. Yeah. 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 So right. yeah. Gerard would say, yeah, that's, that's, that's all these guys. Chase is their, is those Gerard into here. Aristotle? I well, that I haven't a, come across it, and I that's mean, what threw me when you're asking me about that because I that's that's a bit of a problem. I've just like I've been thinking this through on Gerard. I think he has a weakness. He doesn't understand, or he doesn't take seriously ancient philosophy. So the category of nature is absent in him. So say the definition of I've, virtue. I've noticed that when he yeah. talks about nature, he's a, he's talking about more of like a Rousseauian nature yeah, yeah, than yeah. A, than an Aquinas sort right, of nature. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the weakness. So somehow. Uh, you you've got to rethink Gerard through uh, and bring nature in to make him really totally fit into the tradition. He doesn't quite give you what you need, but I think you can do it. Um, mm-hmm. But but he's that's why I'm, that's what I mean by I say he's too anthropological. Anthropology. Is he talking about St. Thomas at all? Uh, no, I'm looking for it, and it's like no, no, that because you know that's this that, guy he's is, not a Thomas. He's made great friends with Thomas in heaven. But. Yeah, oh, yeah, but yeah, but now he just doesn't think philosophically in that sense. He doesn't yeah. think Thomistically. He thinks anthropologically. Well, but I appreciate that about mm-hmm. him because Gerard is not systematic in yeah. the worst sense of the word, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not a schoolman, that's for sure. No, yeah, he's not. But neither right. was Aquinas, and I think most, <laughs> most, most. Mm-hmm. Uh, those who'd call themselves Thomas and mm-hmm. insist that others call them Thomas, they're yeah. very systematic in a way that Aquinas is not. Yeah. Gerard's not systematic at all. He's no. he's poetic in the best sense. Yeah, yeah. He does but at the same time though, he does he's a Frenchman, so he's got a structure. He's got a uh, he's got a uh, almost a semi geometric account of things. Yeah. 
um, in that the esprit de well, So that's the danger. It's, yeah. You know, you get accused of this too. But if you're mm-hmm. not, if you're not going to have a system, mm-hmm. you could run the risk of having a gnosis. Mm-hmm. That is a cipher in mm-hmm. which all things conveniently fit. Yeah, yeah. And, if you say it in the right inflection. Right, right yeah, yeah. And he, he can sound like that. Uh, sometimes he comes close to doing that. But I think the thing that keeps him out of that is just, he's such a scholar of literature. He just knows how to tell a good story. He, he knows how to follow a good story. So he can really bring this out in all the different permutations of a narrative. So like in the Theater of Envy, you never lose a sense of, I'm reading Shakespeare. I'm not just getting this French theory. But you do get his French theory, but then you also feel like, wow, this is really brings to light all these beauties and intricacies of Shakespeare at the same time. Yeah. So he can do both at, at the same time. That's what prevents him from being just a, you know, key to all mythology. Sell me on Shakespeare. I've, I've, I've had a rough relationship with Shakespeare. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's like I go and you watch Othello and you mm-hmm. say, well, who's the good guy here? Yeah, right. And there isn't really one. There's yeah, all this, yeah. this miserable, same with Romeo and Juliet. Right? Yeah. These yeah. miserable people doing miserable mm-hmm. things. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. give me the hero, you know? Yeah, yeah. You don't have heroes in uh, Shakespeare. Don't, you yeah. don't, mm-hmm. but um, it seems like I'd be the fool to say, mm-hmm. Shakespeare is not worth appreciating. Well, put it this way. Uh, uh, I've had difficulty with Shakespeare off and on. Sometimes it, like a Straussian reading Shakespeare, I've enjoyed Jaffa, et cetera, but other ones I don't. Um, so I like a philosophy that goes along with my Shakespeare where I read him in the light of some bigger thing rather than just, you know, the, the details of the story, which are probably beyond me because I'm not that literary, but, uh, Gerard's account of Shakespeare to me is was the most illuminating account I've had. Where something, wow, this made me really enjoy Shakespeare give, and give really me have the, confidence that something's going well, on. And this is a preview of your class you're going to teach for for Magnus. Well, for one, I hadn't read Julius Caesar before, which is okay. embarrassment. Yeah. Um, uh, but then I read it and I go, wow. Then I see why this is so incredible. Just like it's such a great play, but then also it ties in these other things I knew before I finally mm-hmm. read it. And so it's like a confirming thing. Yeah, Shakespeare knew what I saw from these other areas. He was doing that way back when. And so that made Julius Caesar come alive in a big way. But also Midsummer's Night Dream, that just seemed kind of opaque and somewhat silly. Yeah. And then you suddenly say, oh, wow, now something big's going on here. Just something simple as you have this silly episode where Bottom, this guy that wants to act in all these little plays, he plays the wall. And he's a wall. Oh, yeah, and he has the yeah. two lovers that talk, right. and uh, and then also he gets up and walks away. And uh, the, Gerard just makes his obvious point. Well, in every wall barrier boundary between lovers, it's always a human. That's the third person. The, that's the rival. So the wall is the rival. So you think it really is a wall, but then also Gerard said, "No, it's just always a human there. That's that problem. Mm-hmm. Is there's always a human there." And then you go to Winter's Tale, the end, and you have this strange story that I just read before and I couldn't make hide and hair of. This woman, the guy seems to basically abandon his wife, cast her away, thought he killed her. She's been hidden away, and suddenly he's brought into this room where he sees a statue of his wife, a perfect replica. And he says, oh, she looks so alive. I can't believe she's really a stone. And she's got wrinkles on it. And suddenly he discovers that, no, she really is his wife as though she came back from the dead. And yet he thought she was a stone. Well, this is the image of a resurrection. Only here, it's it's not her so much as him. His heart of stone comes back from the dead. Well, that's the whole heart of the biblical imagery of uh, tripping sta- over the scandal on the stone makes your stony heart dead mm. until finally you need to have that stony heart replaced with the heart of flesh and blood. That's the resurrection of faith and the part of believers. 
And that's what's promised to the Israelites. So he'll put it in you a, a heart of flesh and blood. Well, that's what happens in the resurrection. Well, Shakespeare is able to do this deftly in the story of this guy. His heart, stony heart, comes back from the dead by thinking his wife was a statue, but she's really his real wife right mm-hmm. in front of him. And then you see that and go, wow, Shakespeare obviously must have known all this is going on when somebody points it out to you. And what could be more biblical? What could be a greater account of the resurrection than this, of, of seeing your stony heart come back from the dead right before your eyes? It's just fabulous. Yeah. 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 And then all the stone scandal on, all, all the sacrificial things come to bear the resurrection. It was just absolutely brilliant when I read that the first time. Why do you think Christ builds his church on a, on a rock? Oh, well, that's that's is, that's is part of it. Is yeah. there? A, yeah, it seems like the stone. Is, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Yeah, but that's, then Peter mm-hmm. is Simon. Simon means reed blowing in the wind, right? Mm-hmm. And he becomes Peter Rock mm-hmm. or Cave or Cavus yeah. Rock. You mm-hmm. know, so there's a juxtaposition there of something really flaccid and something really solid. And Peter is that, right? He's but also a, cast screw ca- up. cast out because what yeah, make, what right. makes it solid is that it gets thrown out. The, right. the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Yep. And that's in Psalms, I think, way mm-hmm. back when. And then it becomes the, the cornerstone of the Gospels. Yeah. And the Peter's name and everything else. The church yeah. is built on the stone the builders rejected. It, yeah. Okay. So is that is that Peter, though? I mean, he's not the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone, yeah. Because I mean, it's his confession of Christ that makes yeah. him Peter. Mm-hmm. He's got nothing to add that isn't what he's built upon. Right. Yeah. yeah. That he's got a side with a stone rejected rather than those rejecting the stone. And yet he tried to reject. He's denied him. So he shows he's on the side of the one throwing him the stone out. So so let's go so through. So he's, he's transferred from one side to the right. other. So take, take the biblical uh, progression of stone, right, is that mm-hmm. it seems like, okay, God makes it, this, this stuff, and then Adam decides to basically... Mm-hmm. worship it instead of God. Like he turns his back on God and God says, you're going to, to dust you shall return. Mm-hmm. Right. And by, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to toil mm-hmm. to do what? To earn this mm-hmm. stone to go, you know, you're going to earn gold for the rest of your life by sweating for it. Mm-hmm. Basically you're worshiping the dirt. And one day you're going to take a dirt nap and become one with the dirt. Mm-hmm. And your is death. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Moses shows up with these stone tablets Mm-hmm. And and that's a figure for the stone in your hearts, mm-hmm. on which Christ is going to write the law. And then you got you got Peter the Rock. Mm-hmm. So what it, it seems like there's something there's something going on with the Rock mm-hmm. and fallen man mm-hmm. and redeemed man that's mm-hmm. worthy of note. But I'm not sure what that is. Yeah, yeah. Well, just uh, stony hearts, an image of death connected to Adam. Yeah, yeah. Versus and, 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 and also hard. Yeah, not supple. Mm-hmm. You can't adapt to reality. You're going to hit against it. And then, of course, just stoning. I mean, just think how prevalent stoning must have been. Yeah. Um, and, and you also have those piles of stones when they do epic events, uh, which are kind of Gerard to say, well, that's the, cloud. the fact that you pile up a bunch of stones, that it has this religious significance because what's under the pile of stones? A dead body of the victim. There's mm-hmm. always a dead body under there. Mm-hmm. That's what allows you to have your sacred foundation is some dead body well the gospel is to uncover those stones realize yeah you're a murderer that's why you have a stony heart you need to murder somebody and build your stony uh giant pyramid structures like in babylon or egypt on they're all founded on the murders just like the egyptians built their pyramids pyramids based on the the hebrews the hebrews children were killed 
So that's this genocide is, whether it be genocide or murder somehow, this is the foundation of every civilization is founded on a murder. Yeah. And Romulus then, and Remus. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. Every every kingdom is fruit of a crisis. Yeah, from, yeah, right. Gerard would say. Right, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. And, uh, and then Moses is, interestingly, a Hebrew child spared from murder who mm-hmm. comes back with stones of his own. Right, yeah. Oh, and yeah. comes back to... Uh, uh, with a reckoning on the stones of Egypt, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, he destroys the kingdom, right? Yeah, and leads his people out of it. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I don't know if he destroys it, but he gets out. Yeah, all well, Pharaoh doesn't do so well. I mean, well, yeah, that, 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 yeah. There's always another one, though. There's right? always another one. Pharaoh is dead. Long live Pharaoh. Yeah, yeah. but but mm-hmm. Moses actually. I mean, the, yeah. Pharaoh's kid dies. Yeah, you know, that's a whole. Oh yeah, and then they get wiped out in the flood. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, the, yeah, that's the Red no, Sea. Yeah. That's no fun. Yeah, right. Having a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, why should people take your class uh, in August if mm-hmm. uh, you know? Let's say you never heard of Gerard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, make me the elevator pitch for why this is worth doing. Oh, uh, what what Gerard's worth knowing on, for his own sake. Uh, but even if you don't care about major figures out there, um, you Gerard can open up things in scripture normally you wouldn't see. And so he, he, he allows you to kind of reread and remember things and see them for the first time that otherwise you, you thought you kind of knew, but you didn't really know. So I think, so I think he's, that's his major use academically is reading scripture hmm. that he brings scripture alive. And he, he also brings the gospel alive to a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't take it seriously. A lot of intellectuals nowadays, uh, Gerard has been opening to the gospel that they wouldn't, Taking it seriously, otherwise people are we, highly. We were talking about this earlier, but like Jordan Peterson is the guy I'm thinking of. I mean, well, he's big he, on myth. He's, he's big the guy on that young. probably should read Gerard. I doubt if he has. But I don't. He's the one I don't know if he needed. has. Yeah, right. I don't think so. But yeah, he's exactly the guy that if he read Gerard, that would be an opening to the gospel the way probably no other thinker would. Right. Yeah. But it seems like personal crisis has almost maybe led peterson to the gospel well right yeah but but there's but, a few things that can you can do it intellectually you can do it through great catastrophe mm-hmm. or you can do it through right. profound beauty or metastrophe maybe yeah, but that would but but gerard you know you can have a crisis you know with drugs or you know uh, any disaster uh but gerard is it deals with the crisis in the intellect of people so you have an intellectual crisis among intellectuals and gerard's probably the, the one guy that can crack open that thing because intellectuals are very mimetic. That usually goes along with the territory, and they don't quite understand themselves, but they know something big's going on in literature. They're trying to crack this nut. Gerard's the guy that can crack this nut that they're kind of obsessing over. Because they tend to be obsessives. Right. Everybody's neurotic and obsessive in an intellectual world. He did it himself. Yeah. He's his, basically saying, yeah, I was very mimetic. That's, that's why he just was able to discover this. Right. Same with Dostoevsky, Shakespeare himself. Right. So basically, if you're a very high-level aesthete Proust type uh Gerard's the biggest chance for you to encounter the gospel in a way you need to hear it. Right. And it's sad because there are many a pious Christian who mm-hmm. would say, this is something totally, Christ is something totally alien from the myth mm-hmm. of old, right? Yeah. Something totally, mm-hmm. so, something totally separate, apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it doesn't need to be, mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be either extreme, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's that Christ is the fulfillment of myth. Mm-hmm. He's sort of the myth incarnate. Oh, yeah. And all these myths prior to him 
oh, yeah. point to him. He's yeah. just the first oh, one to oh, really yeah. do it. Yeah. I mean, you see that in C.S. Really Lewis. Be it. Yeah, it's, exactly. And right. talking that, right. that it's real myth. Well, Gerard's basically making the same argument, but in a very different fashion. But the fact that they can all come from a romantic approach to myth and Tolkien and Lewis or a Gerardian approach to myth, and yet they come to the same place. That's impressive because somehow they realize to understand any of these myths, however you think a myth is functioning, the gospel brings it out in a way that nothing else can. That that's, mm-hmm. that's a qualitatively different myth. It's not just one of a series. There's something right. different going and, on. And in the, gospel. the gospel draws you into the myth itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. It's like never-ending story or something. Oh, yeah, be- <laughs> yeah. The, the greatest story ever told. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Different, different. But yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you find yourself a part of the story. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. I guess, I guess, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe. Lewis does that too, right? You're you know, mm-hmm. you sort of swept into this mystery world. Mm-hmm. But uh, the scapegoat, here's one last maybe thought on mm-hmm. Gerard that, that yeah. I wanted to ask you about. The scapegoat is the one who's, who's sort of cast out mm-hmm. to save the city, right? Cast out and killed. Mm-hmm. The apostle is mm-hmm. one who is sent out mm-hmm. to save the city. That's what the word yeah. means. Right? Yeah, yeah. Is there is there a relation there between... Mm-hmm. The, I mean, there's definitely an imitation at work. The apostle imitates mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. his master through martyrdom, mm-hmm. which means witness. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's mm-hmm. uh, intentional? Is, is there anything there? Is the, is, is the mm-hmm. apostle like a scapegoat in the sense that he's one who is sent mm-hmm. out or cast out? Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between being sent out and cast out? Yeah. Well, basically, being cast out means you're guilty. You're cast out to, you're like the poison. Yeah. purging from the system. So you got to get it out, like popping a zit almost. That's a crude image, yeah. but that, that almost embodies, because that weird feeling that's a bodily feeling, but also a cathartic feeling of purging, yeah. purgation, right. and yet kind of a violent thing to do. picking your booger feels so good. Yeah, all these things yeah. are like bo- bodily images. Of, like, quite often the body politic is founded upon this. The body politic needs to purge itself somehow to be what it is. Yeah. Uh, so you're casting out, but the thing you're purging out is bad you're getting the bad stuff out the poison out uh but 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 being sent out christ was sent to us he was he he was cast out from the city by jerusalem but we now see the city from him and he's looking at it he's the stone the builders rejected he now is sent to be rejected he was sent to be cast out because he's innocent he was sent out to be cast he, he's out. the innocent lamb and he's the one that, and same with the apostle martyrs yeah they it, are that, sent out they're going to found the new Jerusalem. they're going to found the new city they're the opposite of Cain's city founded upon uh murdering your brother in threatening murder the, further murder rome is founded on the new rome yeah i mean christ's rome is founded on mm-hmm. whereas old rome is founded on remus Remus bloodshed at the mm-hmm. hands of his murderous brother. Right. Whereas the, the new Rome is Vatican's founded, founded on, on Peter being crucified. Peter being crucified. Yeah. Upside down. Yeah. At that. And that's the reversal. That's the, the sign. Reversal. The sign of contradiction right. in the cross that's is right. that reversal that now you have to see everything from the opposite angle. Right. And that cha- in one sense, you, it's, you're covering the same. It's like the same road, but you're traveling. You're facing a different direction on that same road. Well, back to Adam. He he. Mm-hmm. He was sent to look down at the earth and mm-hmm. look down at the dust, and to mm-hmm. dust he shall return. Mm-hmm. So to Adam, looking down is looking up. So Peter's upside down crucifixion mm-hmm. is is like a reversal back to us looking up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, Christ, uh, peace to men of goodwill, right? All of a sudden, mm-hmm. 
you know, and the, for the Greeks, we were at war with gods. They, you know, we were always kind of poking back and forth at each other. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, in Christ, we're friends again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that, so that means he's reconciled us from our rivalry. Because he lets he lets himself be murdered by us. Right. Yeah. But then, but now notice you have this false unity between uh, Pilate and Herod. The day they killed Jesus. He was Jesus, created that very that, day. That very day. So that's that's what normally happens. But now you have the the unification of the disciples. It'll be just the opposite of that. So you can be unified as the crucifiers, or you can be unified on the side of the crucified. What is that? So play that out. I mean, I mean, I, I, I know what the the death of the apostles means. The church. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the death of. Um, Herod and Pilate, sorry, the union of Herod and Pilate. Well, that's just that's just the unity that's always affected by having a common victim. What's the fruit of that? Oh, nothing. It goes nowhere. That's just the same old city that's just going to die. Uh, that's the old Jerusalem. Uh, maybe yeah. we should think this through a little bit more because it seems like there's a secular power and mm-hmm. a um, ecclesial power of old, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Being very careful here, yeah. but they're now in bed mm-hmm. with one another until this day. It doesn't strike you as strange. Well, I mean, Herod and Pilate teaming up. Well, that's that's the nature of uh, if Gerard's right. That's always the case that all all political power is sacred because it's got to it's got to preside over a sacrifice. Right, but all of a sudden, it's not really that sacred in the shadow of Christ. Oh yeah, yeah, you can't take it seriously anymore. Well, yeah, that's right. But they want, but Herod and Herod and Pilate sure as heck take it seriously. Oh, of course, yeah, to yeah. this day. But yeah, well, that's that he's undermined. It's the fact we use the word scapegoat. We know it's kind of BS. Whereas they took it very seriously. Right. So we know the powers have been undermined. Satan has lost his authority over this world. Okay, and that and but the, so that's the thing is that Christ becomes the victim. And and on him, this new, real city is finally founded mm-hmm. as as victim. But what mm-hmm. is? I think the gospel says that that uh, the conspiracy developed amongst them that this was that they took his body by night or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. that it was it was a hoax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clearly, it's not. But at the same time, now what do we see as this plays out? You have this allegiance of mm-hmm. Caesar and Herod, and political power this day. Mm-hmm. In, in this day, today, is achieved mm-hmm. by what? Mm-hmm. Um, identifying oneself as the victim. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's yeah. It's very strange. It is strange, yeah. So, they're imi- they're re-imitating the sacrifice yeah. of Christ. Yeah, well, Gerard has a lot to say about this. He'd say this is the last hurrah that Satan is to, is to use the exposure of the, the, of the innocence of the victim uh, to everybody except Christians. So, they are the ones that are the ones that are guilty. right. right. So you have Harry and Meghan, you yeah. know, making millions yeah, of right. dollars in mm-hmm. royalty yeah. while people are dying next to them and yeah. they come out and figure out a way to con you know, to contrive themselves as yeah. world's greatest victims. Yeah, well that's why Antichrist has no nothing to do but imitate Christ. That's all he's got. So finally this right. this whole woke culture, right. all the versions we've seen in the last hundred years, all they have in common is whatever they're up to. Christianity is the guilty one, but right. we're now we're going right. to side with the victim, except that victim. And that's that victim what, we won't side with. Even in John's apocalypse, the mm-hmm. Antichrist is one who recovers from a mortal wound. Mm-hmm. He describes the lamb, yeah, you know, seven horns and mm-hmm. heads, re- yeah. recovers mm-hmm. from a mortal wound. He describes the beast in the mm-hmm. exact same way. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like virtually identical yeah. to the lamb. Yeah, the false prophet is a fake John the Baptist. So everything's just that's a right. replay. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So now we're in this age of the world 
replaying the Christian yeah, mystery. It's got nothing. Like it figured out the secrets. Yeah. It's like Bane capturing Batman's arsenal. Mm-hmm. You know, um, your precious armory. I will mm-hmm. use it for my own purposes. Yeah, yeah. That's what the world is doing right now. Yeah. And and one of the hobby horses of of Gerard. Luckily, I saw him do this live. A few few classes with him uh, is is Nietzsche. He really is impressed by Nietzsche because he thinks Nietzsche is the guy that saw this most clearly, even though he took up picked up the wrong end of the stick. And so his whole count of Antichrist, him being the Antichrist, this Dionysian stuff, Nietzsche was really working through this on his own. He just wasn't able to make that big breakthrough that you see in Dostoevsky. So he so he learns a lot from Nietzsche, and he brings out Nietzsche in a real fascinating way. And Nietzsche makes this quite clear that finally he's scandalized by Christianity. And he makes it clear. Everybody else says this, but they don't. They obscure it and hide it, but Nietzsche is clear as day. He's he just is scandalized yeah. by the cross. Yeah. Do you think that when Nietzsche was broken, finally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the question. Yeah, I mean, when he when he hugged that horse, when he hugged the horse, yeah, that may have been, you know, the last act of grace on God's part that he had to choose the side of a real innocent victim, right. which is Christ. Yeah, because you there are pivotal moments in people's mm-hmm. lives, mm-hmm. young and old, in the history yeah. of salvation. You have Augustine mm-hmm. finally coming around. Yeah. You have Sartre. Mm-hmm. Having a very similar opportunity as Augustine, mm-hmm. and I think he's on like a park bench and seeing a tree, mm-hmm. and he just sees this tree is a choice, but mm-hmm. then he finally sees the other being as mm-hmm. the enemy, mm-hmm. and he rejects he rejects the unity proposed by the whole of existence. Right? Mm-hmm. He, he rejects God in a right. moment, yeah, right? Right. and he's sart. You know, yeah. uh, Nietzsche is like a question mark. Oh yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. It's fascinating. He's broken. Yeah. Right, yeah, and I mean, what do you think? What do we know? I mean, well, it's curious that image that the, the last thing he does put his arm around that horse being beaten by the driver. That that was a major image uh, in Dostoevsky early work, an image he used for Russia. He oh. thought Russia was like the peasant beating the horse of the or was like the horses the innocent peasants being whipped by the the people in in Russia, and mm-hmm. Russia was that image, and for him that opened him up to the gospel. And so that was the image that finally broke Nietzsche. He just lost it after that. Mm-hmm. Ten years of silence afterwards. Yeah. Who knows what that meant? Who knows? But the image is so powerful. It's clearly an image of an innocent lamb. Maybe we'll be friends with Nietzsche in heaven, too. I hope so. Yeah. 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 Let's see. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else you want to say about Rene Girard? Uh, no. I don't think I could add anything at this point. Okay. The proof's in the pudding. Just read him and learn him. It's worth it. Yep. And what are the texts you're going to be using in your class? Uh, at least a theory of envy, but that will include reading probably three Shakespeare plays. Okay. Uh, I see Satan fall like lightning. That's a possibility. Worth reading. Uh, this may take up the whole time. Right. Yeah, I think maybe I'll just stick with Shakespeare. Okay. Uh, that's worth reading on its own. Uh, but I think you get most of his uh, his theory f- from his reading of Shakespeare. Great. Okay. Yeah. So magnusinstitute.org to sign up for that class. And Patrick Downey, thank you for these three beers. Oh, you're welcome. Very Thanks good. Thanks for having me. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. For more, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021, Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.